0: Just to kind of catch us up to where we are in the stories we're reading through the Bible this year. Because of Israel's continued unfaithfulness and breaking their covenant with God, the Lord has brought the judgment on them that the prophets had warned them about for so long. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, finally came. He took the people into exile. He destroyed the temple. He tore down the city walls. He devastated the countryside. And the legacy of generations of God's people lay in ruins. But exile in Babylon was not the end of the story. God was going to fulfill that great promise He made to Abraham that through His descendants all the world would be blessed. Even in spite of their failures and in spite of being in exile, God was not through with them. He was going to bring a remnant back to Jerusalem and they were going to bring about the new kingdom of God which would bring about peace for all nations. In the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which in the Hebrew Bible are one book, we read the story of this return of the exiles back to Jerusalem and Judah, and it happens in three stages. And with each of these stages, the group that returns makes some attempt at restoration, and they face opposition from without and turmoil from within. First, Zerubbabel and Joshua led the rebuilding of the temple, and we read that story last week, that first group that came back and they rebuilt the temple. Then Ezra came with a group and his mission was to, to bring about a revival, to renew the people's commitment to living according to the word of God and to keeping their covenant with him. And then finally, Nehemiah comes to rebuild the city's walls and gates. Now, Nehemiah faces some of the stiffest opposition. They even threatened the people with violence But what is even worse than that is that once the walls are finished, the people living inside those walls begin to treat each other unjustly. There's economic oppression that leads to the actual enslavement of their fellow Jews. Jews enslaving Jews because they owe them money. And Nehemiah, the book ends, Nehemiah is just angry and he's frustrated and disappointed with the people. What a way to end the book, right? After all of that, it kind of just there at the end you see that the point is is that while the people may have been back in judah they were still in spiritual exile they may have rebuilt the temple and the walls and the city but their hearts were still piles of hard stony rubble the stories of ezra and nehemiah are a mixed bag because people are a mixed bag life is a mixed bag We have our ups and downs, our successes and our failures. And the point of the book is that God is at work through it all. And if we partner with God instead of going it on our own, we can see our lives rebuilt from the rubble. Look with me at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Here we read about some of those who were in opposition to the work. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? It's a good question. And whatever might leave us feeling like our lives are in ruins this morning. It could be physical problems, financial difficulties, a struggling or failed marriage. It could be depression or anxiety. It may be sins and attitudes that we struggle to overcome. The rubble of our lives could be dashed hopes and dreams. It could be spiritual apathy. It could be our repeated failures to change a bad habit or to make a new one. Whatever it may be. Whatever makes you feel like that you're just never going to make progress, like the stones will never come back to life from the heaps of rubble burned as they are, the Bible gives us hope that they can. Our God can make a valley of dry bones come back to life. Our God can make all things new. And Nehemiah can show us how we can begin to rebuild our lives from the rubble of our past, our pain, or our problems. The walls that have crashed down around us can be rebuilt. It depends first and foremost on the resurrection and renewing power of Almighty God. Amen? Amen? But there are things that God requires of us. Things that God equips us with to partner with Him in that rebuilding work. And the first one of those we read about in Nehemiah is passion. Passion. First, you have to care. You have to care about your life and about rebuilding it. Look with me in Nehemiah 1 beginning in verse 1. "'In the month of Kislev in the twentieth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, "'Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire.'" When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah was eager to hear how things were going in Jerusalem. It it had been quite some time since the first group went and the second group went. He knew the temple had been rebuilt. They were resettling the land. But the news he got was hard news to hear. That because the walls were broken down and the gates were burned, the people were in great trouble And the city was in disgrace. And Nehemiah, upon hearing that news, just collapsed right there and wept. And for days he continued to weep and fast and pray. I think it's safe to say that Nehemiah cared, didn't he? He cared about the people of Jerusalem. He was passionate about the safety of the people and the glory of the city. You know, how we handle life's difficulties and tragedies largely depends on what we care about. What we're passionate about in life. Where do you derive your sense of purpose and identity? You know, some people's passion is their work or a hobby. For some people, their passion is their family or possessions or their physical appearance. And while those things are great, the problem with those being your main passion is what do you do when you lose your job? What do you do when... Something tragic happens to your family. What do you do when you're no longer physically able to work in the garden or or go hiking or fishing or riding your bike? What happens when through illness or age or accident you lose those good looks of your youth? Well, you might react like Job did. May the day of my birth perish and the night that said a boy is conceived. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. Now, Job's life was in ruins. He lost everything that he was passionate about. And his reaction throughout the book is a mixed bag. It's a roller coaster of emotions. Sometimes he's defiant in the face of tragedy. Sometimes he's depressed. Sometimes he praises God in the face of disaster. Other times he questions God's goodness and wisdom and justice. And here in this verse, Job, he has an I don't care attitude. And he wishes God didn't care either. He wishes he would just die. Or better than that, he wishes he had never been born. Now contrast Job's reaction to losing everything with Paul's reaction to losing everything. In Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8, Paul says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whose sake I lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. You see, Paul's passion was Jesus. And Paul could lose everything and he was okay. In fact, he rejoiced in what he lost because it enabled him to know and proclaim Christ more. The question we have to ask is, what do I care about? Because Paul's passion was knowing Christ and making Him known. He could endure persecution and imprisonment with a song in his heart. He was a great example of what James 1, 2-4 says. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Nehemiah was passionate and cared about the things of God, especially God's people and God's temple in Jerusalem. That's why his heart broke. That's why he wept. But it didn't drive him to despair or anger. Rather, it drove him to prayer. That's the second thing we need is prayer. We have to, want, we have to, to care, but we also have to ask. Look at verses 4 through 6. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then there's a lengthy prayer. I just want to read uh, two verses from it. In verse verse 5 and 6, he says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant of love with those who love Him and obey His commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night. For your servants, the people of Israel, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. And then skip down to verse 10. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, referring to the king. He was the cupbearer for the king. This is one of 12 prayers in the book of Nehemiah. The book is overflowing with compassionate, faith-filled, corporate and personal prayers. They contain praise and confession and petition and thanksgiving. Some of them are prayers of anguish. Some of them are prayers of joy. Some of them are prayers of commitment. Some of them are prayers for protection and dependence on God. But prayer was important to the work that Nehemiah was going to Jerusalem to do. Prayer is important to us when we're rebuilding our lives from the rubble. Prayer gives us perspective. Prayer broadens our horizon. It focuses our vision. And it overcomes our worries. Nehemiah looked up before launching out. He prayed before proceeding. He didn't just go at it in his own wisdom or in his own strength, but he relied on the Lord's. As James chapter 1 goes on to say, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That's how we can consider our trials Pure joy, that's how we can allow the difficulties of life to build us up in perseverance and maturity. It's with faith-filled prayer. So when we go up against the opposition in our lives, whether those are from people and circumstances around us or doubt and temptation within us, we should pray for God's deliverance and power. That's what Nehemiah did in chapter 4 when their enemies ridiculed their efforts. Turn back to chapter 4 again. After the the ridicule about, you know, can they build their walls? Can they bring the stones back to life from the heaps of rebel burned as they are? Tobiah chimes in, yeah, what they're building, if even a fox climbed up on it, it'd break down their walls of stone. So they're they're mocking and ridiculing the people, but look what the people do in response. Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Now that's quite a prayer. That's not really one we do in in worship on a Sunday morning, is it? He's, He's not praying for his enemies to come around. He's not praying for their conversion to join them in this good work. No, he's praying for God to drive them away. Because he knew that these enemies were really fighting against God, and so he leaves them in God's hands to deal with. There's a principle we can learn from that. When people talk against you, don't talk back. Talk to God. Leave them in the Lord's hands. Verse 9 tells us that they prayed and they posted a guard. See, when their enemies start talking, Nehemiah just keeps on praying and the people... Keep on working. We have to have passion. We have to have prayer. And then we have to have a purpose. We have to care. We have to ask. But then we have to want. We have to really want what we're working for. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine, gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but the sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Nehemiah may have worked for the king of Persia, but he never forgot who his true king was. The Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He may have lived in the kingdom of Persia, but he was longing for the kingdom of God. And so when he learned that Jerusalem lied in ruins, he didn't despair. He prayed about it purposefully and passionately. He knew what needed to happen. He knew what God was calling him to do. See, that's what purpose does. Purpose drives our passion. You care most about the thing you want most. And Nehemiah wanted to see the people in Jerusalem safe and secure behind those walls. The temple of God, the place of worship for His people. Nehemiah had more than just sympathy for Jerusalem. It wasn't a sentimental emotionality that so many people have today. You know, like you might be staying up late watching TV and you see those commercials that show those images of, of abused animals or starving orphans in Africa, and it tugs at your heartstring and, and you, feel, you feel bad. They, they, they play on your emotions, and some people might even give because of that. But unfortunately, that kind of sentimentality and guilt doesn't lead to lasting change. It doesn't transform our hearts. It doesn't make us really committed to something for the long term, for sustained hard work. But empathy and compassion that come from a deep place of purpose, calling, and identity do. Do. The king said, Nehemiah, what this is is a sadness of the heart. That's that passion driving his sense of purpose. He cared deeply. Consider Paul before his encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. This is before the passage we read earlier in Philippians 3 when he talked about considering it all a loss you know, that he may gain Christ. Well, obviously, was he considering a loss, he talks about that here. He says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. These were the things that mattered to Paul before he met Jesus. That's what he was passionate about. That's what he wanted the most. That's what he held on to the fiercest. But after Jesus transformed his heart, he said those things were garbage compared to knowing Christ. What Paul wanted had changed. He was giving a new purpose His purpose was no longer Saul and his little kingdom. His purpose and his passion were Christ and his heavenly kingdom. See, when Jesus is our passion, when His great commission is our purpose, then our prayers will be in tune with God's will. And that's why, as Psalm 37 explains, we can ask whatever our hearts desire and God will hear an answer. It says, take delight in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will do this. You see, when we delight in the things that God delights in, when our hearts want the things that God's heart wants, then we can pray with confidence, can't we? We can pray knowing that we're praying according to the will of God, can't we? But more than that, he says we also have to commit our ways to the Lord. In other words, in addition to, to passion and prayer and purpose, we have to have a plan. We have to want, but we also have to work. Look at verses 6 in chapter 2, verse 6. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, How long will your journey take? When will you get back? It pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct? And then he asks for letters to get timber for the walls and the gates, and and he asks for, for, for protection, so the king sends officers and cavalry with me. And he makes his way to Jerusalem. You see, Nehemiah had a plan ready to present to the king that day. That meant that Nehemiah's plan was birthed in prayer. Those days of praying and fasting, it was driven by his passion and purpose. This wasn't something that he just threw together at the last minute. This wasn't an afterthought. This wasn't a, oh, well, since you're asking. He went there with a purposeful plan. And when he arrived in Jerusalem, Nehemiah had a plan to assess the damage by night so he could do it secretly. He had a plan for when and how he would reveal the rebuilding project to the people and enlist their help. Now, some people look at that, look at such a well-devised plan, look at all the logistics and everything that went into that, and they think, man, that just seems so unspiritual. I mean, shouldn't we just let go and let God? You know? Shouldn't we just, you know, isn't that a lack of faith to, to plan things so much? I've even heard preachers brag about standing in the pulpit without any preparation because the Holy Spirit's just going to tell them what to say. Now, don't get me wrong. I pray to rely on the Holy Spirit to tell me what to say. But to me, that's just baptized laziness. You know, the Bible says that we're to study to show ourselves approved. And when I stand in this pulpit, I try my best to stand with a plan, well prepared and prayed up. We have to have a plan to work. Yes, we must have faith, but faith always expresses itself in action. We can't just feel compassion, say a prayer, and claim to have a purpose. If we really do have all three of those things, then God will reveal to us a plan, and He will compel us to act on it. Throughout the Gospels, we read that Jesus would see people in need and He would be moved with compassion. Now, the literal translation of that is that his heart or his inward parts, which is nice King James' way of saying your bowels, went out to them. I like moved with compassion so much better than his bowels went out to them. That just, But that's literally what it means because in the ancient world, the bowels were the seat of emotions. Think about it. Even today, we talk about something turning your stomach. We tell people to go with their gut. So that that kind of thinking and language has survived even into our vernacular. But the point is, is that when Jesus looked at the needs around Him, He felt something deep within Him. Their suffering turned His stomach and He had to do something about it. Whenever God is said to have compassion in the Bible, it's always followed by divine action and He expects the same from us. But when we see Jesus' compassion-compelled action... Don't mistake that for some kind of a knee-jerk reaction. We may feel something deep in our gut, but we shouldn't ever just go with our gut and expect God to bless it because we meant well. We have to avoid the idea of, I see a need, I just have to do something no matter what it is. That's That's not good. Whenever people in the Bible did that, it always led to tragedy. We have to instead do what Proverbs tells us, Trust in Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Whereas Proverbs 16.3 says, Commit to the Lord whatever you do and He will establish your plans. See, our plans must be directed by God and in accordance with His Word. And Proverbs also tells us that they should be informed by the wise counsel of fellow believers. Proverbs 15.22, Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. So when we commit our plans to God and we're doing the work that He has called us to do, we can endure. We can withstand the discouragement and the frustration and those who oppose us. Look at Nehemiah 6 for an example of this. It's probably one of my favorite chapters in the book. Beginning there in the last part of verse 2, it says, "...they were scheming to harm me." They kept trying to get Nehemiah to come down and meet with them, these opponents. So I sent messengers to them with this reply: I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop? Well, I'll leave it and go down to you. Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Well, then they concocted a story that they're going to—they threatened to send off to Persia that Nehemiah's over here, you know, exalting himself, saying he's going to be the king in Judah. And in verse eight, I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you were saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. We might call that today fake news. He says in verse 9, They were all trying to frighten us, but I prayed. Now strengthen my hands. And then down in verse 10, they send the prophet, a false prophet, to go to him and say, Hey, there are men scheming to kill you. Come into the temple and seek sanctuary. We'll close up the doors and you can hide in the temple. But verse 11, I said, should a man like me run away? Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. And then in, verses, in verse 14, this little episode ends with Nehemiah once again praying. If we want to have the faith and resolve of Nehemiah, to see our plans through in the face of opposition, in the face of lies, in the face of threats, if we want to have the attitude that says, I am busy doing a great work, I don't have time for your distractions, I don't have time for your negativity, I don't have time for all of your discouragements, I have a great work to do, then we need to pray like Nehemiah. And like Nehemiah, we need to be firm in what our purpose and our passion is because then we too can stand against the outside opposition and the inside turmoil, and we can persevere. That's the fourth thing that we need. We need to persevere. We have to work, but sometimes that means we have to fight. In the story I just told, Nehemiah had to persevere against people who were against him. They were set out to stop the work that he was doing. Now, while we might have those negative Nancys and those pessimistic Pauls out there in our life that we have to contend with, We also have to contend with our inner voices. See, sometimes we're our own worst enemy, aren't we? It's those inner voices of doubt and self-criticism that we have to overcome first and foremost. And Nehemiah 4 describes three common inner opponents that we all must face with perseverance. The first is fatigue. There in chapter 4, look at verse 6. After that prayer against their opposition It says, so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. For the people worked with all their heart. And then there's more opposition that comes up. And look at verse 10. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. There was so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Simply put, the workers were tired. They were hitting it hard and they needed some rest. The phrase there that they were giving out literally means that they were staggering. They were stumbling. Have you ever worked so hard? I know when you're in Honduras and you're hauling all those bags of concrete, sometimes you you kind of find yourself staggering and stumbling in that heat because you're so exhausted. And when you're physically drained, that's when it's easy to get discouraged at the slightest problem, isn't it? It's interesting to notice when the workers became fatigued and discouraged. Verse 6 says the wall was built to half its height. You know, lots of times when we start a project... The first half goes quickly, doesn't it? Because we're excited, right? We have a goal and we're excited about a our goal. You think about New Year's resolutions. They go great in January, don't they? But then February has to come. And when the newness wears off and the work becomes routine and boring, it's easy to become fatigued. Verse 10, they said, we cannot rebuild the wall. These are the same people in verse 6 that said that they were rebuilding the wall with all their heart with all their passion, but now they're tired and they say we can't do it. Perhaps you've been working with all your heart to get yourself in shape, to read through the Bible this year, to get out of debt, to strengthen your marriage, and you're tired. You feel like you can't keep it up. Thankfully, we have a God who is there to help us carry the heavy load and make it through. Amen. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to Me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy and My burden is light. Jesus is the Good Shepherd who leads us by the still waters and in the green pastures to restore our soul. Whereas Isaiah 40 says, He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. And they will walk and not be faint. We can overcome the fatigue with His strength. But then we have frustration to face with. In verse 10 there, they they say that they cannot rebuild the wall because there's just so much rubble. They're discouraged. They're aggravated by all the obstacles. You can just imagine if you've ever been at a house after a fire or a place after a a hurricane or tornado and and you just look at all the rubble, you just think, where do you even start? How do we even begin to make sense of this? The junk was everywhere and it was frustrating and just as they lost sight of their goal so we can also lose sight of our goal when there's garbage in our lives hebrews 12 1 challenges us to get rid of everything that causes us to be frustrated as we pursue godliness it says let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with endurance the race marked out for us i don't know what rubble is in your life it may be a, a time-wasting habit that you just can't seem to kick. A possession that you're just really holding on to and, and it, just, it stresses you out and you worry about it. It might be an, an unhealthy relationship. Maybe there's a sin you've been playing around with too long or, or an addiction. Maybe you're involved in some other kind of entanglement that's just tripping you up. Pray. 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 And then pray some more. And in prayer, develop an action plan and work it with passion and purpose and perseverance to throw off that hindrance, trusting that the God who raised Jesus from the dead is able to raise your life up from the heaps of rubble. And the the third one is fear. Fatigue, frustration, and fear. Look at verse 11. Also, our enemy said, before they know it or see us, We will be right there among them, and we'll kill them and put an end to their work. And the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. So the enemies of the Lord's work struck fear in the hearts of God's people, and they felt like giving up. Again, like I said, often our own worst enemy is ourselves, and and what I struggle with overcoming the most is not the fear that other people put in my heart, but the fear that's there already those inner voices of doubt and fear, the the lies of Satan. We have to remember that God has not given us a spirit of fear, a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. This is why God repeatedly tells people in the Bible, do not fear. Or as He told Joshua, He said, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. He knew that the task lying before Jeremiah, just as it laid before Nehemiah, just as it lays before us, God knows that the task is hard. And He knows that we're going to get tired and we're going to get frustrated and we're going to be afraid. And so that's why in Isaiah 41.10 He says to us, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you. With my righteous right hand. In the face of fatigue, frustration, and fear, we have to remember Nehemiah's rallying cry in verse 14. He looks over these things, he stands up and he says to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. We have to fight. Whatever it is that you're trying to overcome in your life, fight for the sake of your family. Fight for the sake of your church and your community. We have to trust in the Lord and not be afraid, and we have to fight and persevere. But you know what? We can't win the fight alone. And that's the last thing Nehemiah tells us that we need to rebuild our lives from the rubble. We need other people. Other people in our life that we have to trust. In Nehemiah 3, you see these groups of people working together, doing far more than they could ever do on their own. In fact, 28 times in that one chapter, you read phrases like next to him, next to them, after him, after them, from the wealthy to the poor, from the nobles to the day laborers, women and men, people from all different backgrounds were working together side by side in the tasks that God had called them to do. None of us can rebuild our lives from the rubble alone. God created us for community. James encourages us to confess our sins and pray for one another. Paul in Galatians said we should carry each other's burdens. I need you. I need you to help me deal with my junk. I need you to point out my blind spots. I need you to hold my feet to the fire. I need you to walk with me through the dark valleys of life. I need you to help me put the broken pieces back together. We need each other. We may not be building a physical wall or temple. But First Peter tells us, As you come to Him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to Him you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We need each other to be built into the people and the church that God would have us to be. Whatever your junk, whatever your wounds this morning, no matter why you are burned out or how you feel like your life is in ruins, I want you to know there's hope. You can rebuild your life from the rebel. You can't do it alone, though. If Nehemiah shows us anything, it's that no matter how much we plan, work, or persevere, on our own, our efforts are compromised because we are flawed people. And our selfish hearts need to be transformed by the gift of God's grace. God loves you. God has a plan for your life. A plan to take whatever the broken, mangled mess you've made of it is and to make something beautiful. That's what God does. He breathes life where there's death, healing where there's wounds, and wholeness where there's brokenness. Let Jesus Christ today raise you up from the rubble. Let Him make something beautiful from your life.